Thank you, Anna, for that update on our COVID-19 relief and to all our partners. We stand with you as you serve these communities. To you, Grace, thank you for giving almost $90,000 to this relief to impact and help those who have been hit hardest. We've been saying over the past couple of weeks that we have a health crisis and a heart crisis, a health crisis and a heart crisis. The heart crisis that we've been talking about recently is the systemic racial injustice that's facing particularly the black community. And we've talked about it as a pastoral staff over the past couple of weeks. John gave a great message last week. I encourage you, if you missed it, it's titled Difference Maker. You can catch it in our app. It's an amazing message of what God wants to do in this area of racial reconciliation and bring dignity to those who are created in the very image of God. This morning's message is out of Psalm 34, and it talks about those who are afflicted. Those who are being pursued by their enemies, they face injustice. They're surrounded by fear and anxiety at every moment. As I read this psalm, my heart and my mind couldn't help but think of the black community. And I want to take an opportunity this morning to apologize for the things that I've done knowingly and unknowingly that have hurt you, that have hurt the members of the black community specifically. I want to apologize for the things that I've done subconsciously, unconsciously, the times that, man, maybe I've added fuel to the fire or times that I've just remained passive and silent. I want to apologize for the impact that that's had. I'm praying over and over again, as, as we said, you know, there's a heart crisis that God would work something in my heart that he would bring greater understanding to me of what so many in our black communities are facing. God's heart breaks and it grieves over this issue. And he's been working on my heart over the past number of years to better understand and to join with his heart in this issue. Isaiah 33, 6 has something powerful to say. It says, God will be a sure foundation for your times a rich storehouse of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. The fear of the Lord. It it says that fearing God is the key to this deliverance, to wisdom and knowledge. What it's talking about is complete and utter trust on God's power and his justice. When we trust in him fully, when we fear him, when we trust that he is in power, to bring justice. Then he opens up the storehouses of deliverance, wisdom, and knowledge. And that's my prayer for our nation. That's the prayer for my life. That through these series of events, something might change. As I said, we're digging into Psalm 34 this morning. And music is such a powerful momentum builder within a revolution, within a movement. Psalm 34 is a psalm that was sung as a means of bringing a community together. Anthony Story writes a book called Music in the Mind. He says this, In all society, music serves as a primary function that is collective and communal, to bring and bind people together. Music pulls us together. It strikes a chord in us, and, and we begin to look at the person singing it or the music or other people who are listening to it and say, yes, I have an experience that is similar to theirs. I have something in common with them. It resonates within us. And that's a powerful element of music. And that's what's happening in Psalm 34. David, our psalmist who writes it, is saying, I've had this experience. 
Do you agree with it? Can you resonate with it? Do you want to participate in it? Do you want to experience it like I've experienced it? And he's got a powerful message of hope that is going to transform our anxieties, our fears, and our struggles. But we have to participate in it. So much of scripture is about revealing God. And the Psalms do that too. They reveal something powerful and cool about God. But Psalms does a unique twist on it. Not only do they reveal something about God, but they're meant to reveal something in me. Meant to reveal something in me. As I read the Psalms, as I look at these Psalms, I am challenged to say, does this resonate with me? Do I have a similar experience? Do I believe what the psalmist believes? And that's what we're faced with this morning is as we look at Psalm 34 to say, can we join our heart with this psalm? Do I believe that there is hope? And how do I find that hope? Where do I go in my sense of need? This song actually came to my attention through a song. I was sitting in my office uh, in Arlington a couple months ago and just feeling very worn out. You know, frustrated, tired, kind of not feeling up to par. And then this song popped into my playlist. It's Psalm 34, Taste and See by Shane and Shane. And it came on and I wanted to hear it over and over and over again because as I sat at my desk and I heard the words of this, there was something in my soul that I couldn't describe, I couldn't explain, but it moved me. Music has the power to move us. We have the power to see and experience change within ourselves through music. And so I'm bringing you guys to Psalm 34 this morning, and it begins like this. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. The first thing that's important in here, David says, I am going to extol the Lord. I'm going to glorify God. What does that mean? I'm going to make him big. I'm going to make him the primary focus of my life. And the powerful thing is, is David's going to sing no matter what. But he's given an invitation to you and I to join in with his song. Because he believes, as he says, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. When I think of the afflicted, I don't think of rejoicing. But he is saying something in his song has the power, the ability to change those who are afflicted and give them a sense of hope, to cause them to rejoice. How does he get there? Verse four, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man, speaking of himself, David, this poor man called out and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. David launches into his experience. I've grown up in church most of my life. And from those inside and those outside, there seems to be this dichotomy when it comes to faith. I've been reading a book called The God Who Is There by Francis Schaeffer, and I've been going through it with a, a couple of guys from Grace discussing it. And Francis Schaeffer talks about this dichotomy, that on one element, we have the church community that oftentimes sees faith as irrational. It's an irrational leap of faith. You just got to believe. You just got to hope. There's no concrete evidence for it. And then there's those oftentimes outside the church that say, no, we don't want an irrational leap of faith. We want rational knowing. We want history, science, data. And Schaefer draws this 
reality that we have been created as holistic individuals. We were meant to experience what seems like the irrational amounts, those things that we can't describe. You know, music moves us and we can't describe why or how, but we know that we've been stirred inside. And that's what's possible with faith. It stirs us. It moves us. We may not be able to explain it, but it has power. But we were also meant for this rational side, history, science, data, facts, truths. And Schaefer says, we got to bring these two things together. And that's what David does in our psalm. He says, I have immense amount of faith and hope in God. But it's not just faith for faith's sake or hope for hope's sake. It is faith in God because I've seen him come through for me. I've got a history with him. I've seen him come through for my nation in the past. I've seen him come through in creation over and over again. God comes through and he's got a history that we can look at. We've got data, facts, testimonies, witness accounts. God has come through and David, our psalmist, brings those two things together. He says, you can have hope because there's a historical element to faith. It's grounded in something. It's a reasonable step of faith that is grounded in evidence. And that's what he's calling us to. How does he get there, though? He gives us three things that he does. He says, I sought, I looked, and I called. I sought, and I looked, and I called. Three weeks ago, Joanne and I lost Eli. Um, We have a trail around our house. We live right next to Lake Akatink within walking distance. And there's a four-mile trail that goes around it. It's primarily a dirt, rock, uh, root-infested trail, and it, it's, a, it's a lot of fun to bike. And Eli's gotten great at biking. He's four years old, and uh, he loves going over all the rocks, the roots, and everything else. He's been without training wheels for almost a year, and he is just confident. He is just fearless. And our tendency on this trail is to go out and bike um, with Joanne, my wife, and myself walking Isaac, our one-year-old, in the stroller. And Eli tends to get a little bit ahead of us, but he always stops and waits for us to catch up, or he'll double back. Um, doesn't ever get too far. He's, at times, out of eyesight, and we like giving him some of that responsibility and freedom. Well, there's one particular day, about three weeks ago, I stayed home to accomplish, get some work done, and Joanne took Isaac, our one-year-old, and Eli out for a walk around Lake Akatink. And Isaac's in the stroller. She's pushing the stroller and Eli gets ahead of her, which is completely normal. Um, the thing that was a little bit different is Joanne kept walking and at some point realized I should have caught up to him by now. He's never this far ahead. Now there's a couple splits in the trail. And so Joanne's mind starts racing. Maybe he went off to a different trail, but I can't find him. And if you've ever been a parent who's lost a child, that dread, man, it just weighs on you. It gets you quick and your mind starts racing. Your palms get sweaty. Your heart is beating. It's a horrible feeling. She calls me in a panic, says, I can't find Eli. I can't find him. Uh, What do you mean you can't find him? Well, he went ahead of me and I should have caught up to him by now. I don't know if he went down a different path or where he went, but you got to come help me look. So I jump up from, from my desk and I run down to the trail and I start looking. What does Joanne do? She stops everybody on that trail. Have you seen a little boy with a green helmet? Have you seen a little boy with a green bike? He's a, he's a four-year-old. He's biking. I can't find him. She is stopping and asking everybody. She actually stops people and says, can you wait at these trailheads? 
I don't know if he went down this trail or that trail. Can you wait? She does not care in this moment what people are thinking of her. She doesn't care about the inconvenience that she's placing on people. She has one thing in mind. I need to find my son. Her need is so great that she is going to do anything to find him. Her need is so great that she doesn't care what she looks like. Like she is just in that humble position of, I, I, I'm pulling out all the stops. We found him. Uh, what had happened, one of the ladies she'd stopped about 10 or 12 minutes into this whole ordeal said, I saw a bike parked behind a bench a little ways back. So what had happened was Eli set his bike down and started exploring on foot one of these side trails. And he was fully expecting, oh, mom will see my bike and she'll stop or I'll see her and I'll come out and meet her. Problem was, is Joanne didn't see the bike and he didn't see her and she walked right past it. We've since gotten walkie-talkie, so there's a little bit more of communication. We've had kind of the talk with him about the dangers and the responsibilities. Uh, but Joanne's need was so great that she was willing to reach out to anybody and everybody for help. The question we have this morning, our need in our nation is immense. Our need in our lives is immense. The question is, who are you going to for help? Who are you going to? Who are you looking at? Who are you depending upon for that help? Psalm 146 is an amazing psalm. The whole chapter is great, but I'm going to highlight just a couple of verses. Psalm 146 says this, Don't put your confidence in powerful people. There is no help for you there. When they breathe their last, they return to the earth and all their plans die with them. But joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper whose hope is in the Lord their God. He made heaven and earth, the seas, and everything in them. He keeps every promise forever. He gives justice to the oppressed. Our psalmist, David, is saying, if we're going to seek help, we have to go to the source that really matters. And he says in 30, verse 34, chapter 34, verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. The psalmist is going to God, but it's not just any God. He's going to a God who is good, who by his very nature and character is good, kind, just, merciful, gracious. He's got a history with him. He's saying, I've got faith in God because I know the goodness of God. If our faith is in humanity, in the good in humanity, like we're just waiting for the good to come out of humanity, we're going to be disappointed. Our hope is going to be immensely limited because as we've seen from recent history and hundreds of years of history, the goodness in humanity does not run very deep. It does not run very deep. We have to go to the source. God in creation over and over again, the series of seven times says it is good. It is good. It is good. He gets humanity. He says it is very good. Humanity was created with goodness within them because God breathed his image into humanity. The challenge, the problem is, is that man looked at his situation and said, God's goodness isn't good enough. I'm going to create my own goodness. I'm going to start looking out for my own image. And what happened? That focus on our own image created division, created a brokenness. See, we were created to enjoy creation and all of its goodness, to be satisfied by it, to live in harmony with God and each other but as we sought our own path, we lost sight of God's goodness. If we want to see goodness come back to humanity, back to creation, we have to go back to the source. We have to go back to the
to the source. Psalm 34 continues, Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. He says to experience the goodness of creation, we have to pursue a God who is good. And we have to reflect a God who is good. The psalmist here does something powerful. He's been talking about the heart. I need to look. I need to call. I need to pursue God. It needs to be my primary focus, my source of my need. But then he says we have to partner our habits with it. See, the habits in the heart are interconnected. And they need to come into alignment with God if we're ever going to experience true hope. They need to come into alignment with God. He tells us this pursue peace. And to keep our tongues from evil, to not tell lies. There's something with our habit that creates change. Until my heart, my habits are reconciled, brought into alignment with God internally, something changing inside of me. Again, we have a heart issue in this nation. Until something changes in me and my focus is directed 100% at God and his ability to help in the situation and deliver, then every attempt of reconciliation with others is going to fall short. Until I'm reconciled internally with my heart, my habits, in alignment with God, then every other reconciliation is going to fall short. Here's the bottom line. We need to depend on God. We need to focus solely on Him. That does not mean that we do not pursue peace. We do not pursue change with all the institutions and the structures that we have. Those things have to happen. But there's a change. It has to go first and foremost through the heart and habits of each individual coming into alignment with God. Pastor John's been saying God will only work through us. He won't work around us. It's absolutely true. God is going to work through us to create peace and reconciliation and healing in this world. This morning's message is much more a reminder that we can only work through God. We can't work around him. We can only work through God. We can't work around him. If we want to see true change, we have to go first and foremost through Jesus Christ. If we want to see change, we have to go through Christ. That's the only thing. That's the only way around it. Psalm 127 says this, unless the builders labor in vain, unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. Second Chronicles 714, if you've been in church any amount of time, you've likely heard this. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, seek my face and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. We need healing in our land, in our nation, but it's only going to come when we humble ourselves and turn and seek the face of God. We've been called to this ministry of reconciliation, to peace, to healing to a movement of reconciliation. We must pursue change, but all true change is going to come through Christ. It's only going to come through Christ. I have hope, like the psalmist does, in a good God. I have hope that he is going to come through as we focus on him. And I can have this hope because he's come through for me. When we depend on him, he comes through for us. He's come through for me growing up with an alcoholic controlling father. He's come through for me in high school when I was filled with bitterness, anger, and rage. He's come through for me when my mom and I left my father in high school and hopped from house to house over a period of several months trying to get our feet underneath of us. 
He's come through for me when life and faith just didn't seem to connect and make sense. He's come through for me in my marriage and he's come through for me in the birth of Eli and Isaac, my two sons, who doctors and ourselves didn't think was possible. When we depend on him, he comes through for us. Who are you going to for help? Who are you depending on? If we're depending on the good in humanity or the powerful people, we are going to be sorely disappointed. When I depend on God, I am empowered. My heart, my habits come into alignment. And then I begin to work through him. And true change begins to take place. When I focus on my heart and my habits, coming into alignment with God, it breaks the cycle of suffering, pain, injustice, and anxiety that is within me. And as God brings healing internally, when he deals with the evil that is in me, then he begins to deal with the evil that's without. All of Jesus' life has been about overcoming evil. His life, death, and resurrection centered around this one point of overcoming evil. Jürgen Moltmann has this great quote in a small book called Experiences Experiences of God. He's a German theologian. He writes this. The resurrection of Christ is not merely consolation and suffering. And what he's saying is we don't simply just have consolation. We don't just feel better because we know that Jesus has suffered. It's something deeper. He says it is also a sign of God's protest against suffering. That is why whenever faith develops into hope, it does not make people serene and placid. It makes them restless. It does not make them patient. It makes them impatient. Instead of being reconciled to existing reality, what he's saying is, instead of throwing our hands up and resigning ourselves to the fact that humanity is not good, that creation is not right, and just saying, okay, I give up. I'm just looking forward to heaven now. Instead of resigning ourselves to the existing reality, we begin to suffer from it and resist it. What is he saying? When we get a glimpse of what Jesus has done through the resurrection, that he has overcome evil, it stirs something within us. When our heart and our habits come into alignment, we find true hope. And that drives us to pursue change, to resist the evil in this world because he has overcome it. It's the goal of Matthew in the Sermon of the Mount to bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth. We can only work through God. We can't work around him. If we want to see change, we can only work through him. We can't work around him. Psalm 34, 8 again says, taste and see that the Lord is good. This morning, we have the opportunity to celebrate communion, which is a promise that Jesus Christ has overcome evil. I'm going to encourage you, if you haven't already, to go ahead and get the elements for communion. What we have oftentimes is a symbol of Jesus' blood and his body. Because these are symbols of change. They're symbols of hope, symbols of healing. I, I love the book of Corinthians. And Paul writes about this story and the whole story of communion, the Eucharist, if you will, or the last supper that Jesus has with his disciples begins like this. On the night Jesus was betrayed. It's a powerful reminder that in the face of evil, that Jesus told no lies, that he spoke no evil. He pursued peace. He forgave. He loved. He poured out good from himself. And in the covenant he gives Right before he dies, 
He says, remembering him, doing this brings us hope, brings our heart and our habits into alignment with who he is because it changes something within us. If we want to see change in this world, we have to work through Christ and what he has done. We can't work around him. May communion this morning be a declaration of our dependence, our utter dependence upon him, our deep need for him in our lives and in our nation, that he might overcome the evil and restore justice and healing both within us and in our society. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Let us take it and eat it in remembrance. Let's take and eat in this morning. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the covenant that is poured out for you. What he's saying is in the face of evil, injustice, and suffering. He held nothing back, but he gave everything. He gave love, forgiveness, and grace. That is what we need in our lives. Let's take and drink in remembrance. We're going to have a concluding prayer. And then after that prayer, Kara is going to lead us in a song called Taste and See. It's actually the song that I mentioned at the beginning of today's message out of Psalm 34. I encourage you to stick around and watch that. And then we have a special video commemorating our graduates. I encourage you to stick around after that song to celebrate with us the families at Grace that have graduated high school. Let's pray this morning for God to intervene in our situation. Father, God, thank you that you have overcome evil, that your resurrection gives us hope and it makes us restless for change. We pray this morning that your kingdom would come down on earth as it is in heaven, that your will would be done. Father, may we see the deep need within us and bring our heart and our habits into alignment to see you change something powerfully within us and out of the flow of that fruit, see reconciliation and healing in the world around us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.